is Nick Cassavetes hey. with the fucking message yeah, from our sponsor. Tally. How many names and facts we get wrong? <laughs> yeah, so Jack Nicholas is a golfer. He's not Jack Nicholson. Who fucking Golden Bear? Who I was referring to in the last episode, and John Cassavetes was re- who was married to Gina Ro- Jenna Rollins. Gino Jenna Rollins. And none of this. That was just that was about a movie. When you were talking about to music, do with anything. Yeah. So. Hopefully we get some of the names correct on this one. Um, this is the one. This is one that I've been waiting to do for a while, and I'm totally unprepared. But who cares? You uh, choose the Joshua Tree. This is episode eleven. Yeah. Um, this is an album that came out March of 1987. It was produced by Daniel Lenoir and Brian Eno, who. I want to say they did the one right before this too, but I can't be can't say that for sure. Um, Just look it up. And <clears throat> one of the one of the producers, or actually one of the engineers on this, was Flood, which we talked about before on the Nine Inch Nails episode. He's the guy who produced a lot of the Depeche Mode records, and I was listening to this. Um, you know, I always listen to the album that we're going to do the, the week of. And Bullet the Blue Sky was the song that I think the one that stands out, not because it's the better song of the, of the hits, but it's the one that stands out that doesn't fall into the grassroots kind of like bluesy. I mean, it has the bluesy stuff like blue, like modern day blue stuff in the in the middle and the and the guitar work but the song structure of it is it's very it's it reminded me a lot of a Nick Cave thing and then it's funny because in the in the notes of of what was going on in this recording and the production they actually worked on a Nick Cave record um so it was just kind of funny that those things were coming out at the same time i don't think i've ever Compared you two to Nick Cave or Nick Cave influencing you two? It kind of sounds like Nine Inch Nails to me. The Bullet to Blue Sky, yeah. like the production-wise. Well, it, not even just the production, just the song structure, like where the vocals lie on the hook, like in the chorus, and it's not a very like that song stood out to me too. Also because the drum beat's really cool, and it's not you know, it's not a I don't know, it's not really a derivative like. You know, there's certain songs where, like, when it starts with a drum beat, like, in the context of rock and roll, it's like, when the levee breaks is just so iconic. It's, like, big drum sound. It's, you know, classic, like, John Bonham is, like, the, you know, like, he was a, he was a really important, like, beat maker as far as, like, iconic just rock and roll drum beat. And the Bullet the Blue Sky, to me, because, you know, I play the drums... It just stuck. It stood out a little bit more because it didn't sound like like any other songs that start with just drums. Because not many songs, if you think about it, start with just drum beats like that. Um, but then, like thinking about it right now, like a song like um, I don't know some of the later like Nine Inch Nails stuff that got a, away, kind of away from uh, the the more industrial like hard edge but when Trent Reznor is like really singing like melody the placement of it to me sounds like 
the song about the blue sky. So not <clears throat> you're talking about the structure, not the dance ability. Like, I mean, I guess collectively, but to me, like really the the vocals, it doesn't sound like it's it's kind of almost where like I think this album it kind of opened up U2's box of tricks per se, where you know, and they I just looked it up. They uh, Brian Eno and uh, Daniel uh, whatever um, they did produce the last. They the wide awake, the unforgettable fire, and then they did produce that EP with, I guess, Tony Visconti, who's like super famous too. That's done a lot of like really slick pop albums, but um, it's like I don't know. You two, to me, like they started out kind of like a kind of like a new wavy band that turned into like a songwriting band, and then this album kind of is their kind of a pinnacle in their career but also where it's like the songwriting's really really a lot more like poppy but then a song like Blue at the Blue Sky shows you like it's almost like it's a precursor to like Zoo TV or um, Octune Baby where they they show what they can do in a pop context but with like an edge kind of you know what I mean yeah um, yeah and it's it's like, when this first came out, it was a huge... I mean, this record was fucking huge. Like, it didn't matter what you listened to. It didn't matter what you were into. This record made an impact all across the board. People who liked, you know, all the different kinds of music. And if if I can go back and remember, like... I'm like, I'm 16, so I'm, I'm listening to thrash metal. I'm listening to punk. I'm listening to a lot of the new wave stuff. And, like, this album comes out... It sounds, you know, it, it sounds very much like, like a movie soundtrack or it just had this like, it just had this like, I don't want to say ordinary, but it had a very adult contemporary quality to it. Something that your mom and dad would listen to, but it still made an impact on people of my generation. Like it still had a lot, like I think. I think the punk ethos of like the subject matter and, and they got a little political. They got, they, you know, this is a band from Ireland doing basically an American album. It's almost like this is their exile on Main Street, you know, but instead mm-hmm. of exiling, they're like doing a revival tent tour of America, you know, like yeah. in a preacher, in a didactic kind of way. And it's kind of like the, it's like who's next too. Like that was like, you think all those songs on who's next like bob o'reilly won't get fooled again those are like american anthems by a british by a british band yeah but they just got so adopted and kind of in a way u2's like they're kind of the last super group like they're kind of the last really big act that were able to you know i mean i guess if you don't i don't i don't i don't know metallica it's different because again like they're still I mean, yeah, they could they could sell out the Rose Bowl, but they don't have that mass appeal like a U2 does. Because like you're saying, like this album, like adult contemporary, um, I don't think that anything before this, like U2 was still like, like I said, they, they had that new wave. Like I remember seeing videos for from the Unforgettable Fire. Um, I think Pride 
In the Name of Love, that song was their first really big, you know, kind of crossover hit because New Year's Day, it's like, which is on war, uh, I believe. Um, New Year's Day and Sunday song, Bloody Sunday, those those two songs before that's, those are on Pride war, in the Name of, yeah. Those are big hits, but they are still kind of, it's kind of new wavy. Kind yeah, of those that are new wave. Those are definitely like uh, out here on the West Coast. It would be a K a K rocker, KNAC. Yeah, like KNAC before they turned into yeah, yeah. the heavy metal. But then Pride in the Name of Love. That's like a song where it's like, okay, this everybody is away. F- this it's almost like if you listen to the like Tears for Fears first album, like uh, what's that song? Uh, you must change and like some of their like harder mm, like Mad they're a new wave. And then songs from the Big Chair. It's like well. Now your mom owns a Tears for Fears yeah. record, it's which like, is the songs are great. It has a broader appeal to it. Yeah, I think too. Like, I mean, all the music back then was changing. Like, you have look at Wham's first record compared to the one that broke them out. Wham, yeah. make it big. It was like it still has all those elements of like you know, like they sound like the Style Council, but now they're like where the Style Council stayed in that little whatever niche genre with other bands like the blow monkeys and you know i don't know the can't think of anything off the top of my head um everything but the girl like bands like that yeah. there's a, there's like this next step which i think a lot of times has to do with production teams you know um, right yeah who's who's at the helm i listened to the demos of this and i don't know I don't. I know they recorded this the year before, obviously, because they already had an album out two years before this. Why do we in America's nineteen eighty five? So between eighty five and eighty seven, when this releases, they're working on this record. So there's stuff on the demos that has a lot of what's happening on the last record. It has a lot more of that sound. Mm-hmm. So whoever took these demos and were like, we're gonna give you, you know, you're gonna have this like different um, sonic landscape to play with and it, it works in such a way where every, this whole thing sounds like it's like a, it's like another version of it's like a wall you know it's it's conceptual it all goes together even the songs that don't like both the blues guys the stand out as far as like it's the i don't i hate to use the word edgiest especially because the guitar player's name is the edge but it's the one that's not the softer rooty mm-hmm. you know kind of stuff like still haven't found what i'm looking for with or without you those are slow jams great you know still haven't found what i'm looking for is a great gospel record by a white irish band mm-hmm. <laughs> um and with or without you is just a straight love song slow song you know and i there's a couple other ones that are a little bit I don't want to, they're not dancier, but they're a little bit more up tempo. One Tree Hills one and a, a couple of the, a couple of the ones they have, but they all sound very similar. And in the demos, the demos didn't sound anything like this. Like one of the demos actually sounded a lot more like a Nine Inch Nails song, like you're saying, mm. than what came out on the record. Like if you listen to the demo for what Bullet the Blue Sky is, I, it's it's something like I think the title that they the working title was like it's a story to tell or or something like that. And it's actually a story that um, that he wrote that Bono wrote 
from being down in 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 uh, a war torn part of Latin America where they actually were being fired upon. Like there was actually bullets flying towards them, not like they were the targets they just happened to be in the area you know yeah um but you know in god's country one tree hill mothers of the disappeared i mean these are all like soundtracky records like before people were making records just to be on soundtracks this is you know and i think a lot of this is brian eno and daniel lenoir's like influence well yeah they're making you know music for airports music it's you know like and it i don't know like like it's kind of uh i think unforgettable fire has a lot of like ethereal like soundscape moments but within song structure like not just jammy or whatever but it's just it's a pretty like sounding album uh and it's like really easily digestible but it's also a really like highly sophisticated compared to like war october and um what's the first one boy boy the ones that came out before that um and i don't know it's if you think i don't know if i i haven't i mean i i know like this song this album i know it pretty well i don't know i haven't listened to it like i think my favorite album by them is war just because that's the one that has like, like Boy has some good songs. October to me, it's like it has Gloria, which is is cool, but there's nothing really like memorable. But Gloria is just a cover, right? No. Oh, it's not. That's the, just the name. No, it's not the. It's Van not the Morrison. Them. They did do something like that, but it was like a reprise in within. Oh, uh, because that's they did that in Live Aid, right? They did no. the. I thought they did the them version. Nope. Hmm. All they do at Live Aid is um. What's the song about Martin Luther King? Pride. Um, huh? Pride. No, it's a different oh, one. Oh, Sleep? No, no, no. It's... um. There's a song called MLK. What's the name that they... What's the song that they did? I thought they didn't do a whole set? No, they did one song for like 10, for an 15 hour? minutes. No, it's, all those sets were short. <laughs> Um, I kind of sworn they did. I think it's "Wide Awake in America." I think that's the name of the song, or that's what they say in the in. That's like the hook in the song. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I know what song you're talking about. It's Fourth uh, of July, or no, no it's, it's bad, bad. Yeah, it's that's not, the one that they not did at Live Aid. That's all they did. Fuck, I don't even remember that. Um, I remember seeing that on tv i mean i remember seeing it on tv i didn't remember that they only did one song yeah i remember seeing them on tv that's where i was first like i mean i'd probably you know heard new year's day this that and the other but i remember for some reason i remember being outside and we were like playing in the street or whatever and it was kind of getting dark that was the feed from uh uh they played at the one in uh, wembley stadium and i remember f- it was just timing i I guess that was my closest thing to like everybody who saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Um, right. So like I came home and then I remember we had that little, we still had one of those janky TVs where it was like, like those old TVs where no, it's they a did giant two, wooden they did two, box. They did two songs. They did Sunday, Bloody Sunday and Bad. Oh, okay. But I then Bad, 
went into Satellite of Love, Ruby Tuesday, Sympathy for the Devil, and Walk on the Wild Side. Yeah, it was just that song. They But they did all four of those other songs in... Yeah, but it's just, it goes into, it's like a medley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh... So yeah, I remember I remember coming and I remember seeing their performance and uh, it was it was great. Like I really liked it a lot. And I mean, I think I was what maybe when was Live Aid? Nineteen eighty six. Live Aid was eighty five, maybe nineteen eighty five. So yeah, July thirteenth, nineteen ten. Um, but the thing that I remember about it was the little hook. Of the guitar playing, and which of which song? The <clears throat> the bad song. Oh, bad, yeah. Because it's just the same thing over and over and over. It's just yeah. this little little like uh, melody. Um, it's funny. It's well, no, continue. Like if you really listen to, especially later, you two, it's like the edge really isn't like his approach is not even like a, a guitar player. Like it sounds like. Sometimes it sounds like a keyboard. Sometimes it sounds like a xylophone. Like he's got so many effects and so much going on, which I think Brian Eno probably helped like captivate on record. Um, it's he's not playing chords. He's not playing you know riffs. It's just these weird little soundscapes where. You know, you listen to the context of the song. You got a really good rhythm section that isn't doing much more than just holding it down. And then it really lets, there's just all this open space for like Bono, who has a great voice and like his phrasing and like the way that he interprets melody um, rhythmically with, you know, the lyricism. It's like, it's kind of a perfect fit and it makes them really unique. Like, I think that, um and whether you like them or not like you think about their output like they put out i mean how many records by now and you know some of them are better than others but they've put out a lot of standout records that are just like wow you know and this was their one that like really broke them it's their fifth record it's the one that really broke them out and they took that ball and ran with it and this is a band where when they first started, they almost just closed up shop because they were all into Christianity and they they had like mixed feelings about it and they weren't necessarily like wanting to be in a rock and roll band. Kind of like the zombies where the zombies, um, you know, in the 60s, they were putting out music and they all wanted to go to school. They didn't necessarily want to. This is when they have hits on the radio. And right. When like rock and roll is just <laughs> like breaking out like. And they're like, ah, I want to go to school. It's yeah. Like, what the hell's wrong with you people? But, you know, whatever. Like, I think, I think the time, <clears throat> the, during the times too, it, I, a lot of the people who were doing the new wave music, which still was underground, like mm-hmm. during this time, a lot of the new wave, like Top of the Pops was playing a lot of, you know, was Top of the Pops was responsible for pushing this along in a lot of ways um so much so that i didn't even realize some of the things like i just i didn't i didn't know what went into the music that i listened to back then like in the 80s like mm-hmm. i remember hearing songs and i just thought people went into the studio 
recorded it, put it on a record and put the record on the radio immediately. I didn't know about remixing and mastering and, and, you know, versions that had failed. Like there was a, there was a story on the top of the pops documentary that I was watching and John Peel was talking about this band dead or alive Mm. and dead or alive did a version of you spin me right round four times. It kept charting in the, in the year, you know, in the UK charts, this is way before it even made it to America Mm -hmm. and it kept, charting in the mid 50s it could never break the 50 barrier and they couldn't figure out why this song did well one week like it it would jump from like 48 to like 100 or something like that Mm -hmm. like week by week and they couldn't figure out like there was something about the song that was like it was gonna it was destined to be a hit but there was something weird about it then the remixers this was their fifth remixed version of it went into the studio and they were like this is it we have no, we don't have any ideas we're all out of ideas how are we going to do this and one of the engineers was like you know what there's at the at the what are those things called they're like they're like library records they're not libraries but they're uh they're collections of sounds uh-huh you know like sound effects and and this one engineer went through the, all of the sound effects that were on these records and he found one called two dogs fucking (laughs) they actually added the sound of two dogs fucking from this library record put it in the remix and they called that's perverse (laughs) and they called it the tdf remix Mm -hmm. for two dogs fucking and that's the one that we all know that's the version that we all know in the club and in the american charts you know when it got here and it's funny because if you think about like you're saying was you're talking about the zombies was it the zombies you're talking uh-huh. about like a lot of those even if they had a hit by the time it was a hit to us or it was a known hit they were living on the dole for years and they made a little bit of money but a lot of that money went into the to the practice of making the record like the only yeah like they're done with it the only only person who switched up the music industry when it came to this kind of music was the factory records guy. Um, mm. Is it Tony? I, think, I can't think of his name right now. But the guy who started factory records. Yeah. He basically was like, he changed the the model of of the the artists who made the record, the artists who kept the, the, you know, the, the earnings and what have you. And <clears throat> he changed the whole program. He didn't even really, he just did it just to do it. He didn't even do it because he wanted to be like, you know, like the guy who started Virgin or any of the American big wigs. He just was like, look, I know how to make records. I have this place. We can do it here. Just come in and make your record. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, there's, there was no like grandiose, like, like, you know, people who the Rolling Stones were huge. Elton John was huge. It was all these acts were huge. These guys never saw themselves that way Mm -hmm. because it was such a small market. We, to us, it was huge because by the time it got to us, it was already an established, you know, thing. And it's so funny because like, even like the style council, even, you know, Paul Weller come from the gym, they were still doing 
other jobs as they were making records. They were still working and like, and, and I, I, I think some of the bands, like they went back to work after they, after they put out their records out. Like there was a couple of guys that were one hit wonders like King. He had one, he had a one hit wonder. There was a, you know, there was a, a big lot of them. I can't think of all the, the acts right now, but I remember we listened to them growing up here in the eighties, you know, the only bands that really, really continued their their like mega stardom is bands like U2. Mm-hmm. You know, they they got so big that Bono started a fucking organization and got hired yeah. by the World well, I read too Bank and stuff. This album did have like a huge promotional campaign behind it. Um, mm. where at that point, you know, and this is on Island, right? All the pieces are being put together over years. Like base, I mean, the whole record industry grew up really fast. If you think about it too, you know, like if it starts putting out rock and roll records, well, real rock and roll records, according to, you know, America didn't really start until the sixties because all the rock records that existed in the fifties were R and B. So that didn't count. Like Atlantic was a rock and roll label before it was allowed to be called rock and roll because it was all black artists. Right. Um, But then, so you fast forward from getting all through the 60s and then what happens with like, um, like Clive Davis, you know, and turning the whole flower power scene into what it was, you know, with like Janis Joplin um, I don't know, even not really the band, but kind of just that whole like first wave of groups, like quick, quick messenger. So the, lo- uh, the Laurel Canyon scene kind of, no, no, before that. Oh, before because then that led into that where it was, you know, you're now you got like David Geffen, um, doing the, you know, like turning like Buffalo Springfield, getting Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and then it goes into like, you know, the Eagles, but then it goes back into rock again really soon after the the kind of like AM radio wave. And then it's like 70s. You know, you even have bands like like Bud Sweat and Tears and Chicago, um, kind America. of like that jazz rock, you know, Santana, like all these acts that have come out of the 60s going into the 70s and becoming, you know, stars. But they were learning... Like, you know, okay, you get the tour circuit, you you go out on tour, you make a record, you come back, you got this promotional, you know, I think all these pieces are being put together. You know, you have all the politics in Rolling Stone where they're the ones learning how to like, oh, well, hey, you want advertisement in my magazine, put my artist out. Uh, yeah. And so by the time you get to now the 80s, um. It's like, okay, well, now we have this whole game and we know that we need to release this record. Now you're paying attention to when are other records going to be released, who's doing what. Uh, You know, I don't really think the Grammy Awards had anything to do with anything other than it's just, you know, a small group of people, whatever, you know, like what's really behind it wasn't what the public saw, you know. Right. It's not really like, I mean, it, it, to a degree, it's taste making because, yeah, you did understand that, you know, an album like Thriller 
that won all these Grammys. And even just, I mean, just Michael Jackson at the Grammys doing Billie it's, Jean is will forever be. That's yeah. another kind of Beatles moment when he did the moonwalk. It's like, and it's it's funny that the Grammys <clears throat> was like the bookend of what all what the promotional machines were. So like Top of the Pops, uh, our our MTV. You know, we didn't have we that the Don what's his name's rock and roll show wasn't really big. Don Kirshner. Don Kirshner. Well, then you had Burt Sugarman's The Midnight Special. And and what's his name? American Bandstand. Dick Ed. Clark. Oh, Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan show, but those were like standalone, like ventures. Like, oh, okay, you made it to the Ed Sullivan show it was a big deal, or the Dick Clark. Yeah. Uh, American Bandstand. Yeah, those are big deals. Same as. And you, you know, in the UK, top of the pops, the Grammys were almost like it's almost like they didn't pay attention to the promotional machines. They were a diligent, like we're just gonna listen to those recordings and based on merit. Then it started to turn into the bookend of like after the promotional machines, you know, got all their stuff out. The Grammys like reinforced it by whoever had the most promotion was going to be awarded the awards. It's almost like they were like, yeah. it's almost like the gears just started to lock in during the eighties. Like yeah, prior to the eighties, the Grammys were a, a, almost like it was almost like the Grammys were the library of Congress's little sideshow. Mm-hmm. Like nobody knows what's in the library of Congress as far as like achievements and awards go. Unless you're super nerdy and you fucking look into that shit. Mm-hmm. But the Grammys is this huge L.A. party for all the record labels. And they they actually have showcase parties around the time that the Grammys are coming out. It's Clive Davis's party. Right. They're, and they're, they're like, oh, we have seven artists that are up for awards. And then here's five of our new artists. They're going to come and sing tonight at this showcase mm-hmm. or whatever like that. And it's like this promotional machine just can't keep up with itself. It's like, how many how many things can we promote and, and reinforce the promotion? Like, uh, if a million people existed and a million people bought the record, what the fuck are we promoting anything for anymore at this point? You well, know what I mean? keep like, the albums in the charts. Too. Right. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I forgot. And then I need to keep this. And it's like, it's just a machine at this point. Mm-hmm. And even though it is a machine, and I'm sure they had a lot of promotion backing you know, the machine had to back this fucking huge album. Even if you take all that away and no one had ever heard this record and you just dusted it off and put it on today and listen to it, it would be as relevant now in the current political, you know, uh, environment that we're in. Cause this was the Reagan environment. So a lot of the stuff that they were, you know, a lot of the stuff that was going on with the wall is about to come down in two years you know, the Soviet, uh, the Cold War between the U.S., the IRA. The breakup of the USSR. Yeah, the IRA bombings and stuff that are happening in this band's hometown. And it's like nothing has changed since this album has come out. It's just been moved around the map. It's not like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the names and faces may have shifted and slided. You know, we had the, the Iran-Contra thing going on during this time. And it's like nothing has changed, and and so this would be just as relevant today as it is, as it was when it came out. And it's like, even though with all the backing of the promotion and and the marketing and the fucking th- endless think, world tour, I think that's I I don't disagree, but I do 
think that there is something to be said about the stigma of like what pop culture like is and not necessarily what pop culture accepts because you know like in the last i want to say just to be safe the last 15 years there's been a lot of stuff that has been unearthed and to me i get like like it like it's not even exciting anymore it was exciting when it was like oh my god look at their like remember when like the when the the death record came out it was like this band that fucking no one even knew about it was like crazy and it was exciting because it was like man i really want to hear this stuff and i bought that record and overall i think there's like maybe two or three standout songs and mind you it's not like a proper like record record but still there's a couple songs on there that are like like yeah this is this is great but it wasn't like it wasn't like like i found you know this piece of gold where the whole thing is just amazing mm. um so then after you know a while it was like everything that got unearthed was like oh my god it's so great like daniel johnston or whatever i, I saw that guy's thing i'm like i don't give a fuck about that guy's music i don't like it why is like a why is it such a big deal? Was he really that great? It's like, I don't think so. Um, that Searching for Sugar Man, like I heard that song, you know, the only song that I remember was that I Wonder. Yeah, it's a good story, this, that, and the other, but it's like, it sounds like second-rate Donovan, and really, like, is it really great? Or is it great because we want it to be or because someone told us to? So then you go to the Grammys, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, same people that are behind that too. You know, it's just fucking Rolling Stone, Ahmed Erdogan, a handful of people's little private club who they want to put up on their fucking mantle. Right. Um, very little to do with public opinion only until the 21st century, um, really. Because uh, they didn't give a fuck about Rush. They didn't even care about Led Zeppelin, which doesn't make sense because that was Ahmed Erdogan's fucking band. You know, they were on Atlantic and they got nothing but bad reviews. But the fucking public is selling out arenas to go see this band, you know, but rolling. But Jan Winter didn't like them. So it's like, well, who the <laughs> fuck are you like? Why does that even matter? But anyways, what I'm trying to get to is, you know, when you. Like how could you can't even begin to imagine like an artist like a Michael Jackson, who has always been in the public eye, always been deemed great. Or let's let's not even say Michael Jackson. Imagine if you heard Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder and it was like, let's just pick that and it, no one ever knew about it and we just found it. Like, not saying that the mu there's no way the music changes, but your perception would change and you'd be like, well, is this really great or is it, you know what I mean? I and think, that, that's tough because it is. I think but in, in, that, in that light, I think we can do that with anybody. There's actually a movie called Yesterday about people not mem remembering the Beatles or some. Oh yeah, yeah. Some weird like there's other people that remember the Beatles and one guy. Yeah, I've I've, I've seen the trailer. For it's it. actually a pretty good movie, but I think I'll never see it. It's actually it actually is a pretty good movie, and it's more of a love story with the Beatles music as a background. Stop trying to sell me on it. I'm never going to fucking see it. Um, but I think if we do that to anybody, I think we could apply that to, we can apply that to anything. But 
as music lovers and as people who are constantly digging, like I find stuff I had never heard about and I'm just as wowed by it. So even though it wasn't a lost tape, it I didn't I never yeah, knew of, of it. So I, I discovered and I'm like, fuck, this came out when? And I listened to it and I fucking tear it apart and I'm just like, I'm completely absolved in, you know, in what's going on there. I think I do that all the time. I think it's just weird when, you know, that thing existed or maybe that death. I don't know. I don't remember the story, but it was like their sons had the tape and played it at well, a party. Well, it was Jello Biafra supposedly found or got a hold of their first seven inch by some some chance. And got it. Like played it or something. So it existed. Well, yeah. Yeah. So it's, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's just that when people glamorize it and like oh shit we gotta you know and like the sugar man thing they had to make a movie about him the movie was interesting because his i mean he his music was not standout to begin with that's what i'm talking about. that's why he didn't make it in the first place exactly but, but, then but it's like now it's like with this movie oh but my his God, story is very reminiscent of a lot of other people's story his story is almost in line with like a Jimi hendrix who had to go to europe to make it big because no one here gave a fuck about his music. Yeah, his homegrown exactly. country couldn't give a shit about him. He had to go to England, make a name for himself, and then like, oh, he's American? And like, I yeah. think that Jimmy, no matter what the fuck, you, where you put him, was going to but, come out and shine. But, but even Sugar he, Man ain't going to do that. Exactly. But then now, <laughs> then it's like, oh my God, this guy's so great. And then, oh, now he's playing it's, Coachella. It's like, really? Do you deserve to even yeah, it's, fucking? It's and then just the thing, novelty. I'm glad you brought up Jimi Hendrix because, well, Jimi Hendrix was playing in the states for years before he got discovered, and he played with Little Richard. You know, well, he, play, he played with the Isley Brothers. Yeah. He played with um, Wilson Pickett, uh, King Curtis, like all these bands. You know, but also, I mean, again. Playing R and B, right? Not rock and roll, but then by the time he like basically just ended up in New York playing with anybody that was around, you know, like he was playing with like Robbie Robertson and fucking like the whole like uh, Dylan-esque like folk scene, you know, but it was, um, what's her name? I think it's Linda Keith is the person that basically discovered him Mm. and then told Chaz Chandler, like, you got to fucking check this dude out. And then they got him over to Europe, to England. And then that's when, you know, but even Jimi Hendrix, it's like his band was put together like it right. was like okay we got this guy he's fucking amazing let's put a band behind him like there was so many steps that were taken to make him into the star that he became with this undeniable talent he easily could have if linda keith wasn't in there that night someone else he could have gone the way of sugar him, man <laughs> but he could have went a lot of different ways yes yeah. um or I don't even know what that guy... His name is Rodriguez. I keep calling him Sugar Man. Rodrigo. Rodrigo or Rodriguez. Yeah. Again, like, yeah, his story was cool or whatever. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, why that people... That's you know, a good song. That Sugar Man is a good song. Yeah. But it, it sounds like it sounds like a Donovan, like... It sounds like a lot of stuff that came out from the 60s. But even though that's a one good song, there's nothing, nothing else in his catalog I know. that's even worth listening to. We're rolling. Um, but before you get into that, I was because you brought up the 
the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I want to go over the inductees of this year. So <clears throat> Pat Benatar, Depeche Mode, it's kind yeah. of like long overdue. The fucking Doobie Brothers. I don't. I don't How know. How were they not in there? That's what I was. That's this is why I'm bringing this up. How the fuck are the Doobie Brothers not already in there? It Whitney. does make sense that Steely Dan got in before them, but still. Maybe. Whitney Houston, deserved. Judas Priest. That's kind of. Uh, I don't know if that one's. If I would be on board with that one. Craftwork, so. I definitely think belongs there. Motorhead definitely belongs there. You don't. Mm. You're not sure about Judas Priest, but Motorhead, yeah. I don't know. That's crazy. Well, maybe I'm crazy. I just think Judas Priest is like a one, is like a one, not a one hit wonder. What do you call it? A one track. One trick pony? Like yeah. Like ACDC? ACDC is more one trick But the impact that bands. ACDC had is much bigger and broader than Judas Priest. Judas Priest is like, like a specific thing. And I, I, I love him. I love Judas Priest. I feel. I, I just I don't think I love Judas Priest like like of their whole everything. I love just a little tiny window of it. But that's what I'm saying. Like and I don't. All that stuff sounds. I sick. don't know if that's a Hall of Fame induction. I, I'm not mad at it. I'm just saying, uh, Nine Inch Nails. I think that is definitely deserved. They created a genre. That's as what's far crazy. As I'm, that seems so early. Like Nine Inch Nails seems, and Doobie Brothers. Like. Nine yeah, Nails, what does Doobie Brothers have to fucking do? Nine Inch Nails seems... Where do they have to doobie? <laughs> Roll some more fucking doobies. Uh, Nine Inch Nails seems early, but I would put them in before the Doobie Brothers based on the fact that they actually created a, a fucking genre of music. is in, in my eyes. Uh, Notorious B.I.G. If... It's not even rock and roll. If Rakim ain't in there already, I don't Public know. Public Enemy is, right? I only think the Beastie Boys are. You know what's weird is I like, think only the Beastie Boys so far and Run it's DMC. It's not even rock and roll anymore. I mean, Depeche Mode, it's not rock and roll. No, but I, I like the fact that it's that It's all encompassing them. at this yeah. point. Uh, Rufus and Chaka Khan. Mm-hmm. That should have been in there a long time ago, too. He, he basically created rock and roll. Mm-hmm. How the fuck is he not in there? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Um, Todd Rundgren, that's a huge one. That's people, an old one. That he should have been in there too. Yeah. Uh Soundgarden, eh, not so sure if they need to be in there yet. That's too early too. It's like That's what I'm saying. I think it's too early. Now, this is these these last two piss me off that they're not automatically in there. T-Rex and Thin Lizzy. Mm. How the fuck is T-Rex yeah. not in the fucking Hall That's of Fame? That's crazy. Like fuck you Hall of Fame people. Oh. And I saved this one for last because this is one these people shouldn't even be in record stores. Dave Matthews Band. Not only should they not be in the fucking Hall of Fame, they shouldn't even be allowed to have their records in public. This band is fucking shit. <laughs> yeah, that's not rock and roll. Fuck that should be- you, Dave. Fuck you. Anybody in the fucking band except the guy who died. Rest in peace. Fuck this band. One of the guys died, but I don't have any like ill will towards their their oh, ability just after to breathe. All this, fuck you, hey man, fuck <laughs> you. Oh no, you guys are cool. I man. don't want them to die. I just want them to not ever make music. That's all. Um. Anyway. Yeah, that's not. That's, that's all right. That's I'm a going, whole. They need a new Hall of Fame. That's like a hall of fucking trash. That's <laughs> what they should do. Can we get? A, can we start a new rock and roll hall of trash? I and nominate like, Dave Matthews. What's even the Grammys anymore? It's weird. I don't even. All right. Like, I think the Grammys, like, 
I think, what was it like when Guns N' Roses? I think after them, it wasn't even relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't to even me. remember. Was th- that had to be for Appetite, right? Did they win Grammys for Appetite? Yeah. Or they win for Use Your Illusions. I don't know. But I, I mean, remember. it's just like like it's. Is it even matter anymore? Um, I mean, the Grammys is just me. Grammys is just straight trash now. But going back to like thinking about you know like what makes like there's the whole everything that's behind an artist that puts them on that platform. Like there's great artists, like the one, one artist that I got into a few years back uh, and I just started buying every record by him is uh, Dwight Twilly. I like to say Twiley cause it just sounds better, but it's Twilly, the Dwight Twilly band. Um, that guy, you know, he was, he was like making music with like Tom Petty and with him. Did you Tom hear his Petty. new song? Twilly, 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 Twilly daddy. Uh, uh-uh. <laughs> I think he's kind of lost his mind now too, but anyways, <laughs> He put out a ton of records, just like a lot of bands did in the late 70s and early 80s, where they were taking chances on artists. And, you know, sometimes you hear a record by a, by an artist or a band, if you take a chance, and you're just like, man, how did they even He's like, got- put all the effort into putting out a record? But then right, that right, guy, right. Dwight Twilley, he could have been like not even a one hit wonder, but he could have had some like some hits i feel like he's he's in the nick low range of things like he's got that well and nick low had some hits no that's what i'm saying he's in that he's in that nick low range where he's not like he's not a rod stewart he's not a george michael but he's in that like like uh i know what you're trying to say he has a song that i can't even think of the name of right now but it's one of those songs where it's like, how is this not in all those romantic movies? Like, mm. it should. It just sounds like a soundtrack song. Yeah, you know. And I think some of the Nick Lowe songs have the same quality. You know, like mm. these songs are like the perfect and soundtracky song. A lot of times when you when you read and you do a little bit more investigating, why certain things like didn't happen. A lot of times it's because they didn't have the promotional backing they didn't have the tour right. something like something wasn't lined up you know like even a band like uh, tom petty and the heartbreakers they were one of those bands that was like all right let's give them a shot and then they they fucking they 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 passed you know yeah and that's not saying that tom petty and the heartbreakers didn't make some really great music and some songs that are you know just etched into like american culture because they reflect it but it's like, man, there's a lot of other artists out there that were that were fucking neck and neck with them. Why didn't they get that push they didn't have, or that you yeah. know lucky break? You know, um, another a band like Rush. Like I, I watched their documentary and they were saying that by the time they put out Caress of Steel, they were going down the tubes and they were just like they were going on their touring circuit was like just going down. They had just got Neil Peart like a couple records before that. And it was just like they might have even broke up and then they went into the studio and they, you know, were given an ultimatum like you guys have to write a better record or we're going to drop you. And then that's when they put out 2112 and they basically just said, well, we're going to go out the way we want. So fuck you. And then that in some weird way connected to all the fucking nerds in the world, which there's a lot of us because I love (laughs) Rush, too. Um, I I love Rush, too, but not live. I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to go see them live. Uh, but anyways, it's like there's just, there's so many things that are like mechanized. Like 
even when uh, what's his name was first starting to work with the Beatles. Uh, I can't think of his name. The their their manager. Um, uh, the one that went to uh, one that had an affair with John Lennon, the gay one. Yeah, what the hell is his name? God, I could see his face too, but I can't picture. There, him. There's a cool movie about him. Um, um, the hell's his name? I'm pulling it up. Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein. Yeah. So like, there's a, there's a really cool movie about him and uh, John Lennon going to to Spain and having their little affair. Mm. It's like an uh, unspoken truth yeah. or something. <laughs> I believe it. Um, but he, uh, I guess it was like right when they got, they put out one, like a single on Parlophone or whatever. And he did a thing where it was like he bought all the copies so that it was like, that it would go to number oh, one, yeah. like a sell, like he sold it out, you know. Um, there was like the, the band The Move that turned into uh, Electric Light Orchestra. They were like making hits strictly in the UK. They, they were a band that did not cross over in the States for a lot of weird reasons. Same with, if you think about, like, the Kinks were never huge in America, but yet their songs... That's crazy, you know. But they had some beef with the States, were kind of like the Stone mm. Roses. Like, that's another band that should have just... Fuck, they could have taken over the world at a certain point, and it didn't happen. But the, then you kind of get the, them... The Stone Roses are fucking mountains and mountains better than fucking like a band like Oasis. And Oasis See, gets, and I was thinking, but Oasis... Oasis gets all the fucking credit... And I'm like, fuck that. I like, it took me a long time, but I ended up liking a couple of their songs. I don't like all their songs. I don't like all their, their records. There's a couple of songs I really do like, but like, I appreciate Blur much more. I appreciate, uh, what's his name? The guy from Blur. Fuck, I'm blanking on his name. But he's behind I like, so many other bands. I like um, Oasis. There's a certain formula to Oasis and why it works. If you listen, if you break down their music, if you listen to Oasis music with no vocals, it's songs that you've already heard. When you mm. listen to all the chord progressions, like a song like, um, what is it? Don't Look Back in Anger. You know that song? Um, I literally know two songs. It's a gorgeous, it's, it's seriously like, it's a gorgeous song. If that song doesn't get stuck in your head after one, one play, then it's like, I don't, I don't know how that's possible. Mm. But anyways... You listen to just the music, it's like the fucking graduation song. So mm. it's something that you already know. And then they have these little tricks where they they have like because the brothers, they both like Noel Gallagher sings a little bit lower than Liam Gallagher does. But they have the same cadence and they have that same twang in their voice. Right. Um, but they have these tricks where it's like, okay, this is our range. These are the notes that we're going to play with in the in the melody, you know, and this makes me think of something. I just watched this thing um, as a documentary with uh, Dizzy Gillespie um, and he's talking about, you know, it's all about bebop and the formation of it. And then it goes into his later career. But he's talking about how melody, not to say that it's not important, but that rhythm is so much more important because he's like melody. It's the same all the time. There's only so much you can do within a scale. And then you put that over the rhythm of the chords. Chord progressions are basically, you know, and the, the rhythmic patterns just dance around whatever the notes are in the chord. Right. And then you have the 
you have the the uh, what's it called the scale that's where you find your melody within the key so there's all so these like components if you're, on a ma- if you're in a major scale and you're going up it's like major scale basically is just all the white keys on the piano is like a major scale. right but i'm saying when you go up in the major scale, it always has this sense of like it's a good feeling or happiness. Yeah, there. exactly. And when you triggers. go down, it's the the darker, you know, like uh, what's that? It feel you could feel it more. Yeah, like what's that? There's like there's a pattern to all those like uh, Nina Simone. The range. I'm feeling good. I think it's it's like it's like just each step she's going down in the major scale and like. Um, uh, what's the the my sweet lord? It's like the same. It's like the same thing. It's like going down, and then when you go in the opposite direction, you're going up. So you're saying Oasis is only going. They're they're manipulating the the they're manipulating like the the scale to go upwards and like to to they're reach. They're just playing like a, in the middle. Oh, they're playing. They're going up okay. and down in the middle. And at that time, you listen to like bands like Suede or. Verve, you know, Blur, they have the same little drawl, same little like singing, but the melodies are like the same. Um, It's funny, I was listening to, I don't know if we talked about this last time, I was listening to a country western station and listening to modern country and I had listened to modern, I guess, pop music. It is exactly yeah, the same. It's pop music. The only difference is the accents. Um, so, like, I, I I thought about that, and I'm like, man, that's that's true. Like, if you just start dissecting, you're just listening to, you know, the singing, the voice, or the guitar. So, you know, like yeah. the, the licks. It's like it's the same fucking shit yeah. all the time. It's just in a different context. It's funny because in that movie, that movie about the Beatles, that people don't remember the Beatles. I don't remember if that's the premise is that they don't remember the Beatles or they didn't exist. They, well, they had to exist because the main guy knows that they exist. And yeah. He's like going out of his mind. But they go to this little thing about he was in a talent show with the girl that he's like in love with backstage waiting for her turn. And that's how they became friends or something. Um, but he was singing an Oasis song mm. and they were like, Oasis? Like, because the Beatles don't exist, Oasis doesn't exist. Yeah. Which is kind of funny. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But then there was also some weird stuff that didn't make sense. Like Coca-Cola didn't exist, but Coca-Cola was around before the Beatles were. Mm. So it was like some weird ties that they did. It's funny. But too, interesting. The more like, I don't know, Oasis, they, again, they have their formula, which to me, they don't sound like the Beatles at all. Um, because they don't take those like I don't know the Beatles has straight ahead stuff, but their more interesting stuff is mm. the stuff that has those weird chord progressions that are what made them unique. Yeah. But some of their songs like Cigarettes and Alcohol, or even like a song like Lila, it's like they're they sound more like the Rolling Stones. Mm. You know, they have songs that are straight like you would think that it was Keith Richards and Ron Wood playing the guitars, um, and then he's singing like like uh, Johnny Rotten. You know, so they they were smart of what they picked and choose to create their sound. Um, and they also are the ones that just stuck with it right out the gate. Because like Suede's first album, could they could have been the ones on top of it all. 
but then they kind of backlash themselves because their second album doesn't follow suit. And you listen to Oasis' first two albums, and it's like they're they're basically just doing the second album is the first album just a little bit better. Got it. You know, because then they go from like supersonic to now you got like Wonderwall, um, which yeah, and see, Wonderwall is a stadium chant. Yeah, well, you should don't look back at anger is even bigger than that. Is it? It's just that Wonderwall. There's something about it that just connected to everybody. Yeah. And I listen to I that's one that song and Champagne Supernova are the ones that I like because they're the immediate they're the first ones that immediately I recognize that that's mm-hmm. that band. Like when they first came out, I was like, "Fuck this band!" Like mm-hmm. they were. I didn't. They I were, didn't like them. I don't. Either. I don't want to say they were trash, but they weren't as interesting as Blur. And as the stone, like I was all about the stone roses when they came out. Like, well, the stone roses are the ones that sh- I mean, because even like, you know, it's funny. We're t- going back to this album we're talking about now. 1987, the Happy Mondays put a record out in this year. Um, fuck. There's a, a lot of ago. those bands that could have, you know, so did uh, Darklands came out in 1987. Shit. Jesus and Mary yeah. Jane. The Earth, Sun and Moon, Love and Rockets came out. You know, Love and Rockets yeah, see, is a is- band that could have been just fucking superstars true um and it'd be interesting to go and dig into their you know like this this record this the joshua tree record i feel like this was where you two separated themselves because the the wide awake and everything prior to that they were in line with those other bands and the bands that were just about to come out and break out. Like you're saying, these bands released albums at this you know, contemporaneously the same time as this came out. The band that I think has more of an influence on those other bands is like an Echo and the Bunny Men. They put out a They're, record this year. But they had already had a few records out, right? They weren't brand well, they didn't new. Because put out, they put out what? I think Porcupine. Was that like 84? Came out. I, I feel like they, they were putting stuff out before those, yeah. like... Psychedelic Furs. Yeah. Oh, they're definitely... Um, psychedelic Furs definitely are in that same group. Yeah, because see, Echo and the Bunny Runner from 1978. They started putting records out in... What's their discography? Discography. Crocodiles came out in 80... Heaven Up There is 81, Porcupine's 83, Ocean Rain's 84. Yeah, and Ocean Rain, that's that's the one that made them like, you know. But again, to me, Echo and Bunny Man was like, they're too British. And like, this, this their their big record, the Echo and the Bunny Man self-titled album, came out in the same year as this. So they're neck and neck with U2. They're, this is their fifth record as well as U2's fifth record. Joshua Tree and U2... I feel like I don't know if this was on purpose or if this was, you know, I don't know if this was by design or if this was just how it happened. You two separated themselves. They went all the way to the right of the dial and completely pushed themselves up into another echelon of like, uh, you know, in a different arena than these other bands, because at this time. When Joshua Tree toured, when they toured for Joshua Tree, they didn't play clubs. They didn't play the Palladium. They played the fucking Coliseum. Well, no, they weren't there yet. Because I remember when I was in high school. They played the Coliseum in this tour. I was there. But but they weren't. I don't think that they were there by themselves. Because they were playing. The, they, they did didn't like open. multiple dates at the sports arena. They didn't open. 
this was a just was a I Joshua Tree tour they headlined and it was Coliseum, which is like an eighty thousand person venue. I'm gonna have to fact check that. Fact, fact check it. Um, but anyway, what I'm <clears throat> what I was trying to say is there's something weird. It's weird that they went backwards in their sound, and I don't mean backwards like in their own personal sound. That they went, they they went backwards in in um, you know music sound, and instead of going forward with like the synthesizers and the modern day stuff that was happening. They're like, you know what? We're going to do a roots album and we're going to make it heavily, you know, influential by the blues and by gospel. And it fucking worked. And there's this like standalone record. And I say standalone because even though Octoon baby has a little bit of the songwriting styles that's going on in this record, nothing after this record they just they just progress into the modern day stuff back again, you know, mm-hmm. and and like well, the yeah. Echo and the Bunnymen's and the Stone Roses and all those bands that were like vying for that spot, like the Smiths, even you know, there's 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 a general. We were talking about this last time. We were talking about like the scenes that people were were putting into. Like you were comparing like. Fishbone and the Chili Peppers and like that LA scene. Like there's something about all those bands, even though they all have separate sounds or something that you can lump them all in together. And that's how I feel that late eighties new wave. Cause this is, this is what we would call all this music is like the new wave stuff. Yeah. All had that similar like quality to it. And well, you yeah, two did camps. it. Yeah. And even like, I was looking at this, like a lot of hip hop came out this year. Dana Dane came out. Uh, Public Enemy came out with Yo Bum Rush's show. Um, I think EPMD. So there was all these acts, and then you have like Jazzy Jeff. So Jazzy Jeff is like the watered down version yeah. of like a Slick Rick or whatever. And then that's the one that's like, okay, well, it's not so much that I'm sure every artist to a degree gets the little pick, like, okay, well, we can turn you into this. Right. And some groups are like, they either go against it or they don't want it or they don't get picked for that. But it it's all manipulated, you know. Um, another album that came out this year is Janet Jackson. That was, I mean, there was also the R&B. The Rhythm Nation? The R&B years were getting yeah. big and hot too. You know, but I think the pop was kind of like, kind of lacking. And that's why this just was like the perfect time for you two to just have that like kind of all by themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah, cuz they they took to over they took over the adult contemporary market, the new wave market. Probably because they had a basis in the new wave fan base already. Well, yeah, um, they were already had a stronghold on that because of everything that they've, you know. Going into the R&B stuff, I was I was watching that that uh, that top of the pops doc. <clears throat> I didn't know loose ends were from the UK. I had no idea. And I was like, so f- Loose Ends? They're like that 80s R&B group from... Mm. Um, they had like, you know, little club hits and stuff like that. And I was watching it and they were on there and they were like, yeah, a British black R&B group. They were like, get out of here. That belongs to America. It was hilarious because they struggled. So what they did 
is they fucking came to America and had American producers produce their record. That's the, that's the one that got them on the charts. Finally, mm. they were struggling back in Europe, you know, back in the UK. And I guess they were, I don't know if they went and got cameos producers or they just liked the sound that cameo did. So they kind of went in that direction, but it was just funny. Cause I was like, fuck, I remember that band. I remember them coming out in the eighties and I had no idea that they were fucking from the UK. It's just funny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a lot of. I mean, Jody Watley put out a record this year too, so there was that. Like, I don't think New Jack Swing had really taken off yet, but it was like rumbling. You it's know? it's about to because that's the it's like early 90s. guy. Guy came out in the eighties. Yeah, Casey and JoJo, but I mean, when it got like when it was just everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I remember being in junior high when all that. Well, actually, it was around this time. It's time when no, all that it's, stuff. Was it's a guy. Popping. The 90s is when like Jodeci. Rex and Effect came out, but Teddy Teddy Riley <clears throat> was already doing his new Jack Swing stuff and Tony Tony Tony. Yeah, was when I got into out. high school, which was after this, well, no, it took a couple years because I went I didn't start high school till 89. Uh so between 87 and 89, that's when New Jack Swing started really yeah. And see if you think about it, like yeah, we were listening to punk rock and all the different things we were listening to. Stuff that wasn't Jane's Addiction's live album came out this year too, which is crazy. Um, that's the best thing I think they ever did. Anyways, um, the thinking back on it now, it makes sense why we were so into New Jack Swing because there was nothing else really happening on the big like pop scene or whatever, you know. Um, I guess if if Janet put something out, she had to have been the biggest thing going on at the time. That might have kicked off the whole New Jacks because that that album is straight all that you know. Did yeah. Teddy Riley even did he produce that? Um, you know what, he might have. I don't. I'm. Sh- I mean, it definitely was. It's not what who's who's is she with Jermaine Dupree? She's with him now. I don't. I don't get it. She's with him now, but uh, let's see. Rhythm Nation. No, this 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 didn't come out until '89. No, but Control. It was the first one. Oh, Control. That's like the inklings of you know. Mm, I thought you were talking about Rhythm Nation. No, Jimmy Rhythm. Jam, Terry Lewis did. did oh, okay. Did uh, they did Control? Rhythm Nation. Control oh. was '86. And that was Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, and Jelly Bean Johnson. But those are all people from the time. Well, yeah, they're all they're all ta- time. They're all princes, proteges. Um, but yeah, it's all it's. So this was eighty, recorded in eighty five, released in eighty six. So yeah, I guess I guess control had I, but. Rhythm, I mean, Control was like, I don't want to say it was huge. I want to say it was like the biggest thing in that genre. She was doing big tours. But Rhythm Nation was like huge across the board. Mm-hmm. She broke all, she broke out all over the place. Well, yeah, one. but it had all, it had that groundswell of everything else behind it too. Yeah. Um, but so then whatever, the Joshua Tree tour, that's what... Like, Rattle and Hum is kind of like... It's the, the tour movie. 
the tour book record of that tour. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, shit, if you're touring an album and your next album is a live album from the tour, that's like, that tour was forever. Like, it's huge, you know? It was 109 um, shows over three legs. Yeah. That's that's what their tour was. Um, and the next album they put out is Octoon Baby, which I think Joshua Tree definitely is where you two came into their own. And then Octoon Baby, it was like, okay, it's almost like they're a different band again, you know? Um, yeah, I think I think what the Joshua Tree did for, I don't want to say the music, I want to say for Bono's songwriting, is it put him into a, and a lot of times he sounds very didactic, he sounds very preachy. Me. But I don't think he's really being preacher. I think he's just like experimenting with like alliterative references. And I think he got his feet wet with Joshua Tree. And then Octoon Baby is where he's just like, I am a fucking songwriter. I am not just a guy in a band anymore who pens the lyrics, who's the front man. I'm like an actual songwriter because that album was, I actually like that album better than Joshua Tree for the songwriting aspect of it. Like, Mm -hmm. I really got into that album. And I really got into the lyrics and paying attention to lyrics to songs because most of the music I listened to up to that point was lyrical content didn't really matter to me. Not that it didn't matter, but I didn't really pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. And then this album came out, or not this album, Octung Baby came out, and that one really, really got, and that one really got, it even there was even a movie that Wim Wenders made until the end of the world, and I think that that's there's a song on the album until the end of the world, and I think it has something to do with either he wrote it for the movie or the movie they made a movie out of the fucking song. I can't remember mm-hmm. which way it went, um, but I think that's what what he did was like nothing prior to the Joshua Tree had he had like sentimental. And story, you know, a a way to tell a story in his lyrics. And he was really, like, he really was concerned about a lot of, like, issues. And, like, Sunday Bloody Sunday is a huge thing. Pride of the Name of Love is a huge thing. And a lot of his stuff had that, like, it resonated that. But it was still in, like, a very, like, like, junior kind of way. You know, like, I don't want to say amateur because he's not an amateur. But, like, in a very, like, he's just getting into that way and then joshua tree he comes in he starts penning these lyrics that are like you have to think about them to get the references you can't just he's just not putting out you know blatant you know information he's like poetically writing songs which turns him into this like great songwriter and then octoon baby comes out i don't know much about a lot of the albums after octoon baby because i think he started to get into this weird his ego just I think it was the the Zoo TV (laughs) tour. That's for pop, right? No, it was Zoo TV. But what's Zoo TV? Huh? What's Zoo TV? That's a a song. No, I don't think so. It's a record. Yeah. That's what came out after Octoon Baby. Um, Oh, I thought it was called Pop. Way after that. Pop is the one with like Discotech and the Lemon. Um, But no, I think they even had a precursor with the Octoon Baby 
tour was getting oh zuropa yeah see and that's when again that they weren't in stadiums until after even after octoon baby zoo tv is when they're like playing like zuropa playing uh what zoo tv was the tour because that was remember they had like the back uh, i see what you're saying i was like i don't know like, zoo tv is a song he's making calls to like fucking politicians. yeah he was he was like carrying a camera yeah on himself that's the tour <laughs> and he was wearing was that the tour where he was the devil character i think i think or was so. that the pop yeah. tour no pop was the one where you wear that fake muscle shirt outfit yeah, he just got like way bar. out. His ego fucking was, blew the fuck Pop up. Pop Mart too. I, it's funny. I remember watching. Um, I didn't watch it when it came out, but they did like a whole thing on the tour. It was to promote promote it, building the tour. Um, it was on TV. It was on regular TV. It was like a vignette that was like I don't know, like a like kind of like a sixty minute special or something. Mm. And they played the Coliseum then, and it was not even near half full because at that point they just they flooded the market they were like you know plus the album wasn't doing as as good as they expected it they just basically got too big for their britches and i think that's when they kind of got humbled and realized like okay we might be unofficially generation (laughs) x is rolling stones but we're not right because the only band that has ever not backslided was like after a certain point was the rolling stones because even a band like the who the who can't sell out the rose bowl the who but the who knows its market and they play like at the hollywood bowl which hollywood bowl isn't fucking small but it ain't the fucking rose Bowl. right yeah the rolling stones are the only band that has ever been able to keep that fucking staying power where fuck if they want to if hey you know what we're just gonna do an altamont they they and make it free. There's going to be fucking as many people as there was the first time. Brazil built, if not more, Brazil built a freeway for the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Like they're, <laughs> they're the only ones. I can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine another artist that gets that kind of a treatment. Like, Hey, you know what? We want you to play here. Yeah. You take the 10, get on the Rolling Stone. And then it's like, what the hell? Yeah. That's, I mean, and deservedly so like, I don't care. If they have to prop those motherfuckers up and they come should out and play. bury them in the Rolling Stones freeway. <laughs> that would be awesome. We should do like a Graham Parsons heist and go steal, steal their, their bodies. bodies. It's not going to be much reinforced. Those little old bones. Did you ever watch that movie? Those little old bones. You know how tall they are? Yeah. All of them are tiny. They're I'm talking tiny. teeny tiny. I've met three of them. I haven't met. The only one who I've not met is Mick. He's the only one. I thought I thought you did. He no. was at that show that you guys worked with. He's the only one I didn't meet. I met Ronnie. Talking tip toe. Charlie. Did you read Ronnie, Bobby, <laughs> Ricky, and Mike? Ronnie, Charlie, um, Keith. I met those three. I didn't meet I didn't meet Mick. Um there was a movie about that Graham Parsons heist with Johnny Knoxville. Yeah, I couldn't watch it. It is hilarious. It's so bad. Isn't it called Grand Theft Parsons? Grand Theft Parsons. Yeah. It's so bad. But yeah, it's it funny. Bad. It's funny. Um, no, but they, I think that's when he got out of control. I mean, if you see the Live Aid performance, he's a fucking ham. But he yeah. works it, you know. Like, like he worked it not as good. Like, 
if you watch the the whatever the live aid like freddie mercury's like all over it like he's just controlling that whole crowd bono bono whatever you want to fucking call him he comes out and not that u2 is not huge at that point and it's a fucking stadium full of people and if you watch it's like yeah there's some people that are holding up signs by the middle to the end of that whole set, the whole crowd is like in his Into fucking him. hands. So that is like a pinnacle moment in his career that made him be like, okay, this is, you know, and that's when like he, he always had like a weird style too. Like they're almost like, I don't want to say rush, but they're, they're just, they're nerds. Like they're, they didn't have like a collective style. They didn't have like, you know, but I think Zeropa, that's, or whatever, that Zoo TV tour, that's when they all were kind of like, oh shit. Clam. Well, that's when, what's his name, started dating Naomi Campbell too. Adam Clayton started dating a model. And see, what's crazy <laughs> is he's the one that was like the Hellraiser in the band. He was the bad boy. He was the one that was like, that talked them into like, let's not be Christian. Let's go do drugs he, and sleep with sleep, uh, and sleeper models. Supermodels. Sleep with sleeping models. <laughs> Fucking sleeping models. He reminded me, I don't know why, but Matt Carso always reminded me of him. Really? Like fake bad boy. That's weird. Like not fake bad boy, but you know what I mean? Like, like, like not the, in your face bad. But you know, like the Dylan character like from Like keep an eye on him. Like 90210, that Dylan character. There's that always, one was too over the top. But though. but that's what I'm saying though. There's always that guy that's like, he's not the bad guy. He just is always like the one brooding. That's what Adam Clayton seems like. I don't know anything about him other than he dated a fucking supermodel. That's it. And he's in U2. Yeah. And he's a pretty good play, bass player. Um, there's a... There's a, uh, there was a couple of things that I watched. It was on the making of, it was a, it was a movie about, there's a scene in Rattle and Hum where there's a guy playing, um, oh, I think you told, there's a guy playing harmonica with this guy, street musician. And there's a song on Rattle and Hum. It's the only song on Rattle and Hum that's not a U2 song. It's just the street musician mm. playing uh, this song. And there's a there's a guy playing harmonica. There's a whole movie about those two guys. He told me about that. And he was a very... He was a f- uh, famous recording. you have to take a break again? Oh, okay. I was trying to hold out. <clears throat> it might have been it might have been on Netflix or I might have watched it on, on YouTube. But it's this, it's this guy. His he goes by Mister Satan, and the harmonica player is this white guy named Adam. And he approached him, and was like, "I, I want to record with you." And they they actually put records out, put a few records out. Satan and Adam are the name, are the name of this oh, band. I think it was on Netflix because I remember you tell me about it, and I I never watched it, but I found it. It's really good. So when when Rattle and Hum when they were recording, they were in Harlem recording with a church choir and I guess they just were walking outside and this guy was just there playing and he had this little brief moment in the movie he's on the album and that I never thought about I I saw the movie you know when it came out years ago I listened to the record many times never even thought about it and then this documentary came out which is really cool and it goes into the whole story so he was Sterling was he Sterling McGee Sterling McGee, who was 
fake ass name. No, he was in a bunch of like he was like a big time recording artist and a, and a player in mm. like not what is that Motown band the what's the backing bands or what do they call those the I can't think of the name. But you know what I'm talking about. He was like one of those kind of guys. Like he yeah. was a session musician and and everyone knew him. And he just I don't he didn't not the JBs. No, no, no. He wasn't like a, in anything in specific. Kind of like the Wrecking Crew, but like not, the Wrecking Crew, yeah, yeah. like standing like in the shadows shows. type shit, yeah, like a player. And so this this white kid just fucking like got him and like went out and toured with them and they and and they made records and stuff like that. And then the guy ended up in a home, but they never really said what he had. Like he didn't have schizophrenia, but he definitely was off. Mm. But it was just funny because when I watched that, I was like, at first I was like, Mr. Satan and Adam. And I was like, I just clicked on it because it said Mr. Satan. And then it turns out to be this thing that relates back to the U2 mm-hmm. uh, thing, which was funny. You know, it's crazy what I remember. And there's probably other things before this, but because um, the Rattle and Hum movie. uh And it has like, you know, it has them playing with B.B. King and that gospel part is pretty awesome. Like when they're playing with the choir. Um, Yeah. And I think they did go down to Muscle Shoals. I don't know. I know they spent some time in like the South and like the Midwest. And I think that's where they got all that like influence from. And I think it was probably during the tour. But I remember being in a movie theater and seeing the preview for Rattle and Hum. And it shows that like to me, it's iconic just because of. It had such an impact, but when it's like the red back screen and you see them walking onto the stage, oh yeah, and it was like a preview for the movie, um, and it was cool. It was like, man, this is like, like to go see a movie about a band, like in a theater. Uh, you know, I guess there's like Gimme Shelter came out, and you know all the, but it's just different. I guess because it was like our generation, it was our time. Um, it was during our time, and thinking about like you know. Uh, again, like there's some some band like uh, when I think of the song like "With or Without You," like you know, not so much that it's like oh it's prolific this that and the other. It's like it's a song that to me it's kind of like every breath you take where it just has this really or or King of Pain like by the Police. Like I'm I'm, I'm thinking about the Police a yeah. lot right now. Every breath you take, I think it's on par. Um, but it's like it's. It has all the stuff that like that is good about a song, like and it, and not in a sense of like you know how I was talking about nowadays. There's there's these melodic lines where it's just you could put it on on any genre. You could make it a country song. You could make it an R. Kelly esque R and B song. You could you know have Adele sing it. Whatever. Like that whole formula is so like it's so interchangeable and it's so one like. It's just thematically uh, like impotent to me, where it's like I, it's it's boring, you know. Mm. I understand why people like it, but to me, it's like it's almost like the people that kind of flock to that are people that really don't like music more than what's on the surface. But a song like "With or Without You," like it has some depth to it, but at the same time, it can grab you and keep you there, um, and. It's funny, we were talking before about like One Tree Hill, which I didn't even know, like, you know, I'm not that super familiar with this record outside of like the hits and a couple other little songs underneath. But 
I never knew there was a song called One Tree Hill. And then, like, it's funny that there's the show that was One Tree <laughs> Hill that got a little bit probably more famous for its soundtrack than the actual show at a certain point. Um, but a song like With or Without You, I mean, how many movies has it been in or can be in? Like, it's it's one of those that just conjures emotion, this, that, yeah. and the other. But it's like, whether you like it or not, or Even whether the- you have a problem with Bono or think that the band has no real standout talent doesn't matter it's like you don't just write songs like that like songs don't just fucking drop out of the sky and are just hey this is one that's gonna last forever yeah and it's gonna make you feel something whether you like it or not um i'm not saying that oh everyone has to like it or you're lying i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying that there is an effect that it has and I'm not saying that, oh, I'm going to go fucking, I'm going to go listen to it all the time or it's, but I'm also not going to necessarily like, oh my God, I got to change the station. You know, there's, there's always the change the station song, you know, where it's just like, God, I like for me that I was thinking about the other day, I'm not a really big fan of Elton John. I respect him, but I don't necessarily need to hear his songs. Like, I don't want to hear fucking Daniel. I think, I think there's a period of Elton John that is more is more in my taste. And then there's a period of Elton John that's like, it's like two different people. Yeah. You know? Well, his glamier stuff is cool. Yeah, there's stuff that's like, like, I don't, Tiny Dancer. Yeah, like, I don't ever need to hear it. But that's not ruined for me from other reasons. But that movie that uses it. Yeah, it's fucking ruined it. But what I'm... It's an awful movie. I like that movie. But what I'm saying is, is that... It starts to fit like that, like just like the big chill using the Rolling Stones. Song. Uh-huh. It's like, it's a connotation. It's really yeah, strong. and it's like fuck. Every time I hear, every time I hear fucking Tiny Dancer, I like pictures a scene on the bus of them singing that song. It's better like, than picturing a midget, <laughs> a little person. Um, Midge. They scare me. Sorry, little people out there. You guys fucking. <laughs> Sorry, scared. little people. <laughs> You guys fucking oh, scare yeah. the shit out this, of me. This show's exclusively for Smurfs <laughs> and cats. Um, but what is a Smurf? It's a blue. And how come there's only one lady Smurf? Do you know what this is? Some <laughs> Papa Smurf is a pimp. That man. is a fucked up thing about the one lady Smurf. That's fucked up. There's some bad theories about. There's that. only one Smurf with bad eyesight. Did you ever hear about the Smurf? There's only one that this, works out. This could either be a conspiracy theory or this could be an actual fact. I don't know which one it is. But many years ago, there was a thing about the Smurfs that the person who created it was was apparently a, a Hare Krishna. And there was not enough blue people getting recognition because of Krishna. So he was like, I'm going to create a cartoon to get people... Like a, a cus- blue person, like the Krishna. Like sad? No, like the Krishna sad because is blue they skinned. Fucking got like bad clothes. And no the hair? Krishna is a blue skinned goddess. Oh, or oh God. yeah, yeah. Okay. So what he, what the theory is, is that he wanted people to get accustomed to the blue people because that's what. So he creates the Smurf. Smurfs. All he got was Smurf <laughs> berries out of it. So the thing about the one Smurf girl was either. A very, very like pornographic reason, or because it could only be one female goddess in this world. Yeah, but that means she had all them smirks. That's this is the this is the same thing as Adam and Eve. 
Adam and exactly. Eve. Exactly. Cain and Abel had to have sex with her mom in order to prop- populate the. F- that's disgusting. Yeah. And that's the fucking line that the Christian people are selling. Like, fuck that. And then what's up with Gargamel? <laughs> he's living in this big ass castle. He got no with bitches and just a cat. And he's all mad at all these little smurfs. Go do what something the, else. What was the cat's name? Azriel. Ah, that's a fucking great name. If you lived in a <laughs> castle and all, your dumb ass, all you got's a cat. Oh, I'm gonna go fuck with these Smurfs all the time. And what, yeah. They're making me so mad. And they live in like, mushrooms. Really? The Smurfs is a fucking that's a fucked up thing. It's like an Alice in Wonderland for Krishnas. Um anyway. How buy it. We, and then how? no they're all wearing white pants but no shirts. How do we talk about <laughs> <laughs> This is how Smurfs do it. Fucking Smurfs. Um, and only one old Smurf. Papa, Papa. Smurf, the only one that has Papa. facial hair. He's got red on. Brainy. That, no, that, I know. Only one needs glasses. I'm trying to think of who all the characters were. Hefty. There was only one that worked. That had a tattoo. It was Hefty. Hefty Smurf. I remember Brainy Smurf. Vanity Smurf. Papa Smurf. So it's kind of like the dwarves meet what? Meet like, a dumbass <laughs> in a castle. Like a cat. biblical story of some sort. There's Fucking no other Papa things in Smurf. It. So yeah, way to go with the oh yeah, we get people accustomed to uh, blue people. I don't know if that's true. You got a cereal out of it, <laughs> and you got a few seasons of a dumbass Smurf. cartoon. Smurf way berries? to fucking go. What is the Smurf cereal? Smurf berries. Smurf berries. <laughs> <laughs> They're delicious. How do we always end up talking milk about milk? Don't turn blue though. Cats. Now we talk about Smurfs. <laughs> Last time it was all cats. Now it's a fucking Smurf problem we got going on. And we're sober as fuck. We're supposed to be high for this. No. What happened? I didn't bring my Smurf berries. Yeah, exactly. Um, wait, what did we get? Why did we get to Smurfs? How did we get to Smurfs? How did you two turn into Smurf talk? I don't know. Talking about... Oh, we were talking about Elton John, Tiny Dancer. Oh, yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he wore them big-ass boots. Gotta keep all these Smurfs out of his show. Answer. <laughs> Um, of like Donald so Duck. you were saying something about uh, Elton John is a channel changer. Oh no, well, I was talking about yeah, the channel, He's a channel changer. changer. Yeah, like and how many channel changer songs do you got? Without with or without you, wouldn't necessarily be a channel changer, but it's not necessarily something you would like. Oh, let me go grab this. I want to put this on and yeah. like feel but a see, certain and way. Some people they front and they're just like. Oh my god And it's like You know what If you really believe that That's fine Because I have those of mine too And all I'm saying Is like a song like that For me Isn't um, Another thing I want to talk about Which was really cool Was I remember The first time we saw Because remember the Where the streets have no name mm. That video Was them playing At the rooftop I think it was on 7th and Main On top of Dearden's In downtown LA Downtown yeah And um, it Made was cool news. It was like a Reprise of Let It Be Um but the thing that I never forgot is I remember we were watching that and dad, our dad was like, hey, I used to sell newspapers on right on that corner. And then it just attached a little bit more to that video for me. And um, it's cool. And then they show them and they basically get kicked out before they get shut even, down. You know? Yeah. And even then, though, um, like and you see people coming out and like it just seems so special. It seems so like. You know, again, they weren't huge yet, you know, and even no, by, this, if you think about that, that that video was taken 
way before the record came out. Um, you know how you're talking about like you don't you don't really the public doesn't know like how long a song's been existing right, before right, right. it becomes a hit and all these. I mean, this album produced I think five singles. It's not like they just all came. It's like they release them like you know one at a time yeah. over a period period of maybe probably a year. quicker than quarterly, but still probably like a year. Yeah. yeah, but that's also to keep it in the charts for yeah. you know and this. I, this record probably is a diamond record. I don't know. It is. Um, it's definitely diamond. But um, easily diamond. And I think uh, Brian Eno still worked with them up until Zeropa. Um, so he was like part of their camp for. I think he a worked while. on. I think he. I haven't listened to the last two records, but I think he even had something to do with those. I think they went back to him. What do you mean? Their latest records. Oh, it's possible. I think he's still doing stuff with them. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if we... I think we talk about Brian Eno so much. He, He's fr- he's from um, Roxy Music, if anybody doesn't know who Brian Eno Excuse is. Me. <laughs> but he's also... He's almost more famous for producing stuff than he is for being in that band and his own solo his own solo stuff. Like, but did more he, like... Because, I mean, you think of like... Like a producer like Todd Rundgren, like he's known for his solo stuff. Um, not really known too well because he was in a band called Hello People. Um, I think he was in the Naz, like early, he was in, like kind of he was nuggets, in nuggetsy garage yeah. rock. Um, and then his producing kind of took, you yeah. know. But Brian Eno, because like, like Roxy Music was like, they're a force. They're also one of those bands too that. But he left Roxy Music early, right? Early. He was like only on second, the fi- two, first two second records. Second record? Yeah. Yeah. But that was their most, like, like Yeah, that has all the shit. You know, like... That has all the good shit. Just crazy, like, you know... Because even his uh, Here Comes the Warm Jets, that's very, very much in the same, like, sound texture as... Yeah, it was just the... Just as the glam. first two Roxy. They had, and they had, like, glam rock, prog rock ties, like... What's his name? Um, Brian Ferry auditioned for King Crimson to be the singer. Wow. And got turned down, thank God, because there would, there have, would been have been no, no Roxy, Roxy music, music. You know what I mean? Like, um, Or Roxy Music would have been would have been Brian Eno fronting it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If, um, What's the other guy's name? Ray? Who's the other Roxy Music guy? Well, there's uh, Phil Manzarek. Phil Manzarek. He's the guitar player. And then uh, Andy Mackay, I think his name's yeah. pronounced, is like the sax. Um, I never, I never remember the rhythm section. Uh, which no, are great. Phil, Their drummer is great. Phil Manzanera or something, right? That's the guitar player. That's the other guy who I'm thinking. Yeah. That's the, um, the other. Yeah. But um, no, but thinking about like, you know, just how table turning this record was um what's the other where the streets have no name remember that video was like them like in vegas old vegas before they fucking ruined it by turning into family fun usa yeah um and it was cool it's like it was cool videos that i don't think they had the benefit of uh I remember Unforgettable Fire had a couple videos and they were just bad. It was like one of them was like they were walking around in the snow and that's when Adam Clayton had like he had like a yellow afro like it was a blonde afro and it was like it looked like a different fucking bass player. Where the Streets Have No Name is the 
that's the for me the iconic song from this record like it's even though it's the most gospel sounding one <clears throat> every that, that's the one that i think of like with or without you sometimes i forget that it's on this record because it sounds so standalone like yeah it's like it's such a love Kinda like every breath you take every odd. breath you take yeah it's very much like every breath you take and it's like it's a great song it's you know it's very iconic even the imagery of the video it's very cinematic but where the streets have no name is like the song for me when i think of this record as soon as i hear the word joshua tree i think of this song you know or i think of that song uh where the streets have no name um the gospel version on the on the rattle and hum is so good i wish they did like i wish they had done more of that on the record itself mm. But it was such a good, and it's such a good jangly guitar. It's like so simple in the rhythm, and it's just the words and the lyrics are so good. The the thing, going back to what you were talking about with the, the Edge not really doing riffs and not really doing chords or anything like that, there's a movie called It Might Get Loud. Oh, yeah. uh, it's Jimmy Page, Jack White, and The Edge. And he he basically breaks down what he's doing, and it's like... He's even though it's so simple, he's still like very, very talented and gifted in the way he's oh, able yeah. to manipulate. Years coming up with, I mean, because he it's just not go- like someone fucking like, hey, plug plug your guitar into all this shit and then just do. Yeah, this. it's like, like he, he developed. That. He knows how to manipulate it so well, but when he was breaking down, like I, I don't remember in the movie what he might have been doing when the streets have no name, and he's just playing it acoustically. And it doesn't sound, there's nothing special about it. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he starts to, you know, turn on the, the rack the rack mount effects, and then you start to get the, the it starts to echo, like the jangling yeah. guitar starts to echo back at you and stuff like that. And it's like, fuck, that's amazing because he's not really doing that much in the, in the sense of like what he's doing on the fingerboard. Yeah. You know, he's not a virtuoso when it comes to like the scales and the, and the chords and stuff like that. But it works so well in the song mm-hmm. that he just did exactly what the song needed. And then Adam Clayton and Larry, Larry Mullen, the drummer mm-hmm. are just, you know, keeping the rhythm there for Bono to go and sing over it. It's like, it's everything about this is exactly the craft of what the song needs. No one's showing off. If yeah, anyone's showing off, it's Bono. Their songs utilize the negative space so well. Yeah. And I think like with his sound, it's almost like a like a Rashawn Roland Kirk or Eddie Harris, like in the context of jazz, when they plugged in their saxophones. Like mm. no one had done that. And it was like or even like like Chick Korea and Herbie Hancock when they started fucking with like they were playing Fender Rhodes and then I think it was Chick Korea that did it first where he started plugging uh distortion like pedals. Effects, yeah. Effect pedals, which was like now it's just a given. Now you could buy a Nord that has all that stuff in it. But to see, like, wait a minute, that's for guitar. And yeah. now you're putting that into this? Like, what are you doing? Um, and it's just manipulating those sound waves. But, again, if you're dealing with something so sparse, whatever fills up that negative space has got to be fucking great. Right. You can't just throw, you know what I mean, like, 
you know, it's almost like, well, who's that artist? I think we talked about him before. It's like contemporary artist, the one that does, uh, I never remember the name. It's like classic where it's just, it looks like, like, uh, like wallpaper, like lines. There's like a yellow box and then it's red and then Rothko, huh? Rothko. I don't know the name. It's like the top half will be red and the bottom half will be blue. Yeah, but it, and, and there's like black lines separating it all. Oh, no, no, no. You're talking about... Um, you might be talking about... Is it like yellow, red, and blue squares? Yeah, but Oh, just, that's Mondrian. That guy. Yeah. Mondrian. Um, like... Like, utilizing like Swatch that, Watch copied all his yeah, like stuff. Yeah, utilizing that space, it's not just like, you know... Yeah, I think... Oh, anybody could just do that. Right. It's like, oh, just throw this and yeah, yeah, it looks great. It's like there's something to that. Or even like I'm looking around right now, like interior designing. You you can have a place that looks like shit and you could have a place that just has the right aesthetics. And it's like that took someone's vision to be able to put that there. And there's a reason why everything has its little space and is just so like pleasing. It flows. Yeah, it's, you know, it's... I think think this... That's what I think they're doing music. You know what's weird is like, and it's weird that I I never really thought about comparing them to anybody in the... Because they always seem like they were just their own thing, but a lot of Bob Dylan... A lot of this reminds me of a Bob Dylan-like project because of the use of space, because Mm. of the, the writing... Like very heady in the writing, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not like he has Bob Dylan never really had anybody brilliant on on you know on anything music wise. It was always more about what he was saying. Well, the band's pretty great. No, the band is good, but they did their job for what the song needed. No yeah. one came in and was like, yeah, you it wasn't know, like oh shred right here. I yeah, yeah, they never had anything like that. There was even a thing in that I remember in that no no direction home. Where Al Cooper couldn't even keep up, and his keyboards were like a note behind, but they kept it in the song because it worked. Mm-hmm. It had like a really can't remember the song, but it's a funny scene where he's just like he doesn't even <laughs> he can't keep up with the chord changes, and he's one measure behind everybody else or a half a measure behind everybody else. But in the song, it works. Snaps it in. Yeah, it like snaps in perfectly, and it's like, and he admits to he was like ah, I thought I was gonna get fired just recorded a fuck up yeah like you recorded a fuck up I thought I was gonna get fired and then they fucking use it and pressed it to album and it's like that's kind of like what this album seems like to me like like I said I don't know when you listen to the demos and there's it's really hard to find any demos on this record I found like snippets that's like 40 30 40 second snippets of like six different songs none of which are ones that turned be, out to be the way it turned out to be mm. And that's, that's when I, first, I had to like look back again and again. I'm like, how are these the demos for this album? It didn't even make sense. The closest one was the one that turned into Bullet the Blue Sky, which I can't remember the title right now. Something about a story or to tell a story or something like that. Um, but it's funny because like I wonder what if this was more of a accidental outcome or who was the person who really had the deliberate you know, hand that's like, no, this is what it's going to be. This is what, this is what fucking, uh, the mothers of the disappeared is going to be. Cause it sounds like a tape loop 
hissing crickets in the background. You know, and it's like, it's very... Well, you got to ambient producers well yeah it's like it's mostly recording engineer brian and and daniel brian eno and daniel lenoir and it's like those two guys and this band together at this time just made this which in in my i'm gonna segue into like rating this thing it's it's kind of like one of those albums where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't if you like it because mm-hmm. U2's is kind of one of those bands now. Yeah. It's like a scarlet well, letter. that dividing <laughs> line yeah. with them. And it's like for, for myself, the time that I was that this came out, the impact that it had on everything I listened to, especially because it's the first record that I can remember really caring about lyrical context. So it's a 10 across the board for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like... Of the, I don't even have the track count in front of me right now, but of the tracks, there's like the ones that I really, really like that really dug into me is Running to Stand Still. It's still one of my favorite songs. Mm-hmm. That song just, I, I don't care if that was on the first album, the last album that they just put out or anything in the middle. That song is like one of my favorite songs of any artist. Yeah. The way that it was written, the subject matter, like what it's about, like the way he's telling the story of like the drug addict. And it's like a lot of people like I don't even know if they get what that song's about unless they know what that subject matter is. But the song still works. It could be anything. It could be anything that he's singing about, you know. Isn't it about Dig Dug? It is. He's running to stand still. (laughs) It is. From fucking Dig Dug. He's running from Smurfs. They were on tour in Japan. <sighs> that was when Dig Dug came out. 87. I think he has a Dig Dug tattoo. Um, but then you know the the guitar. Like I can hear that that still haven't found what I'm looking for, or even where the streets have no name. That that twangly guitar that just comes on. It's like as soon as I hear it, like. I'm listening to the three minute song. Mm-hmm. It's not a channel changer. There's, mm. if anything, there's the, I want to say, no, I don't even think, I don't still haven't found what I'm looking for. For me, is a channel. Like, I, I take those lyrics to heart and I still haven't found the song. So I got to change it. No, see, I, that's like my, that's the one where I'm just, I'm in it. That song, I don't, I never really I liked it to song. begin with. I like the video. If ever I like the video more than the song, I really don't like the song. Okay. I like it. Like, you know that, that video by Wax where it's the... I think it's a... What's his name? Who's the one where he's running fire? On fire. Yeah. I love that video. I watched that video That's a Spike Jones video. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Song's horrible. I don't remember the song. Um, But um, real quick, dig Doug. <laughs> <laughs> real quick. I mean, I get like all the games back then, like Centipede, because it was a Centipede. Joust, you were jousting, but Dig Dug. Yeah. Is that because you're digging and once and then you it was dug, dug, once you digged, you've dug. Was, you've dug. <laughs> dig Dug. <laughs> and he looked like a Smurf. Again, he was a little blue guy in again, a white suit. I just want to reiterate we are sober. <laughs> I mean,. As sober as you, we're drinking mineral water. <laughs> we don't know what kind of minerals there are. 
to be ketamine. I promise you, we are sober. This is the this is the the long term effects of drug use, people. We are talking about we are breaking down why Dig Dug is Dig Dug. Did he dig and then he was Doug? Is his name Doug and he dig? I think his name's Doug. Or his name is Doug and you dig Doug. I dig Doug. And he digs. <laughs> I dig Doug. <laughs> How many quarters did you waste on playing Dig Dug in your life? Never. I was a champion. I was a champion. <laughs> we got fucking champion Doug right here. <laughs> Um, <coughs> anyway, no, you're talking about tens. The, my rating. You're talking about the records. So before this was the unforgettable fire. Yeah, that record got them to another level because of pride in the name of love, and then it got them to. I don't know how. I don't know. I'm sure Bob Geldof was a fan. I don't know how the Live Aid bands got curated. Um, you know, Style Council played Live Aid. They were like the second band. <clears throat> All right. So they put out, they had just put out the Wide Awake? Unforgettable Fire. Same producers. Is Wide Awake not a proper album? Well, that's what I'm getting to. Oh. So then they do that. They get curated to play Live Aid. They get like a prime spot. So like, and Bob Geldof, I think he knew what he was doing when he put that whole thing together. I mean, I think he talked Pete Townsend into like getting the Who back to do that because he was like, man, if you if if the Who plays, then we'll just get that much more. We'll almost get guaranteed like a million more dollars to do right. this. So he was really he was like a Svengali of the whole thing, and it made sense. But anyways, after they played Live Aid, then it was like just put them on a different level where people were probably scouring to go find their backlog catalog. That's why they put out Wide Awake in America. The, uh. the first song off it is a live version of Bad, which is what they did at Live Aid. So they were just capitalizing on that. Who knows what was happening in between that area? Because I think they were still, like they were touring out here. They weren't playing very big places, Mm-mm. like at all. It was almost like when Depeche Mode was first coming out to the States. They were playing small, like, you know, not clubs, but like small theaters. Definitely weren't a big splash. So then when they put that EP out, I think they were like, they were probably already writing. That's where probably some of those demos for Joshua Tree were coming. But then that's when they were like, okay, we got to make it or break it right now. And then I think in that gestation period between... Live Aid and putting out the Joshua Tree is when they got the whole camp together and we're like, let's put this big campaign out. You know, we have these videos. We're going to release these singles. Um, and they earned their space, you know, in the like upper echelons of rock and roll, you know, history. Um, I don't think that I've ever been ashamed to like you 2 I've definitely been made fun of for liking you too, but I'm just like, I admit it. Cause it's like, you know, there's a lot about this band that goes beyond just either how annoying Bono is, or, you know, if you don't like with or without you, cause it's fucking sappy, doesn't matter. That isn't all they're about, but I like them even, you know, obviously I think I like everything before Joshua tree more. Um, and not because I knew it, 
um, I knew the surface, but what I dug in, the album that really turned me on to them was War. That's the one that was like, wow, this is just amazing stuff. I can't stop listening to it. Um, but then even like a song like It's a Beautiful Day, is I like that song. Like Is um, A Day Without You on War? I'm not very good with the song titles. That's the song they Beatles. wrote about um, Ian Curtis. Mm, could be. It's like a tribute. There's like, there's like, wait, is it a day without you? There's the Cure wrote a song about him. You two wrote a song about him. There's a couple of bands, like contemporary bands, that mm. during the time, like the that, you know, he his life was cut so short. Um, but I'm pretty sure theirs is a day without you, and I think it's on War. I don't know. But I didn't know that until I saw the Joy Division documentary. Mm. But um, like A Beautiful Day, it's like, it's just, it's poppy. It's catchy. It's it's a good song. It's, you know, it's kind oh, of A corny. Beautiful Day, the... the boring. Yeah. But I liked like it the, when it came out. But at like that the, point, it was just kind of like, ah, you too. Um, but uh, I think for... The nostalgia of how impactful like the videos were and just the like, I don't know, like that was that's kind of like whether we want to admit it or not, that was kind of our like Rolling Stones or whatever. And there was just this like excitement. Like I remember seeing their their tour posters and like, you know, I didn't go to see I've never seen them. Uh, but just it was exciting to, you know, like, man, this band's doing it and they're getting they're getting big and it was like feeling like a part of their their turning their turning point was like exciting you know if you're a fan um and i was never like a super fan of them but i definitely they definitely hold a place with me um that hasn't like kind of gone away uh, or been changed even with like you know we talked about before like the clash to me has changed once i knew more about joe strummer uh but with you too, even how as annoying as Bono is, it's like, you know, I wish that, I guess I don't wish that he wouldn't be so political. It's just like, whatever, he is who he is. He could do whatever he wants. But just thinking about it musically, um, one thing shouldn't have to do with another. Um, unfortunately, it it does at points for people that just get too big, you know, whatever. But I I, only because of my non- familiarity and because i don't own a copy of it i would give it a nine mm. um but you know it's funny i don't own a copy of it right now either yeah i don't think i ever did. i, I, I had it on tape i might have had a tape of it i had it on tape i had it on cd and i had it on vinyl at some i have point. rattle and hum i still have rattle and hum vinyl yeah that i have i don't and even I know have, how i have it i have what's the cover of war it's the face. It almost looks like Adam Clayton is. What's a kid. the one where it's like the picture of them, and then there's like something mountains else. and stuff. Yeah, that's unforgettable fire. I think I have that one. Mm. It's um, like maroon or the like, song that I was talking about is a day without me, and it's the it's on boy. That's it's the first album. That's the one that's about Ian Curtis. They used to be called something else too. They had a different, completely they different They did. Name. It's in that movie, It Might Get Loud. And they were actually friends with uh, Gavin Friday from uh, The Virgin Prunes, which is really bizarre because that is a total... That's like, you know, he, I industrial think, death rock. I think he had something to do with this album. He might have. Gavin, yeah. 
Virgin Prunes. There's but, a uh, really good. I really like one of their songs. I can't think of the title right now. Good shit. Um. So you're saying a nine? You don't own it. Do you need to own it? Um. Honestly, no. I mean, the, the the way that I would own it is if I like if I and I'm just being honest if I because I don't buy like reissue records unless I have to, which I don't. But um, like you know, if it was like oh the thirtieth anniversary, like I don't I have no interest in stuff like that. I like the original copies um, in very variable forms of you know degradation. Like, I might buy a VG plus of something I really want, and it won't bother me too much. But it's it's got to be playable. I'm not going to, you know, I remember buying the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers first. I kept finding it everywhere, and it was like, God, this is. And it wasn't even like, oh, because of the money. Like, I remember finding it for like 10 bucks, but it had like dings and or mm. like bands. And I'm like, I'm just going to wait till I find the good copy. And clean, then I did. Good, clean copy, yeah. But this one, I would. If I found it and I was in a store and it was like, you know, when you go and you just, I want to, I'll buy anything and you can't find shit if it's there and it's like under 15 bucks, I guess I would buy it. And I might not ever play it because I kind of don't have to. I don't want the reissue or the anniversary edition. I would, I want my old copy of it because I had a clean first pressing of it i have no idea i have no idea where it's at yeah Mm -hmm. um but it's one that i want to own it's one that i i feel like this album and uh octoon are ones that i want like i still have octoon on cd Mm. i fucking in my closet they they did a lot of cd singles for a moment too i mean a lot of bands did this was the era of the cd single the cure for sure yeah the cure actually put together all their singles in a, disintegration. in a no, that's a, that's, that's a proper record. It was after disintegration. It was like a a singles Collection. staring at the sea, standing on the beach or something like that. It's mm-hmm. like an old man. And it's all their singles oh, collection. Yeah, yeah. That one's great. That's a good collection of singles. Jesus yeah. and Mary Chain did. I don't one. think you two's ever. Oh, no, U two did one. They did one because they they reissued. Isn't that what the sweetest thing? Sweetest came thing, out? which came out on this album. Mm-hmm. They never released it you on Joshua Tree. What album is Desire on? I thought it was on this album. It's on Rattle and Hum. It's a standalone song from Rattle and Hum. Because that song's, I like that song. It's a great song. It's weird because Rattle and Hum, even though it's a live, it's a live concert of this, there's actual studio recordings on it Mm. that are just standalone. Desire's one of them. When Love Comes to Town with uh, B.B. King is one of them. Angel in Harlem is another one. Yeah. And Sweetest Thing. But Sweetest Thing never came out on Rattle and Hum or Joshua Tree. Mm. They didn't release it until they did the... It was a single during the the this time period, yeah. but they didn't release it until that singles collection came out. Mm-hmm. And then it was like a huge hit. Yeah. But from this from this time period, yeah. Yeah, Desire, that's a great song. Yeah, that's a good... That's like the... I think that's the... The opening track on that's that almost one. like you know what else was contemporaneous with all this, which had kind of some of that same, I want to say like, kind of like Anglo white R and B was like the Eurythmics. They had some good oh, danceable, yeah, yeah, like yeah. you know what was the song that remember their video like Fishbone was it? Would I lie to you? Would Fishbone I lie to you? They're playing the, the horn. They're the horn section that has that like 
that little, you know, yeah, kind of Motowny. I love the first couple Rita Rhythmix records. Her voice was so, like her voice and Allison Moyer's voice are just like awesome. Yeah, Allison Moyer so great. They have the same range to me, like they hit that same very rhythm and you know very R and B kind of a voice. Yeah, good stuff. All right, good stuff. All right, a ten and a nine. Um, what are you gonna do? We're gonna do the Smurfs next. I think we should do a recap of the Smurfs. <laughs> With the theory with Dig Dug in the <laughs> in the mix, and we'll do it mm. for cats. Ah, uh, all right, later. <laughs>